Imagine with me for a moment a young, single Christian man who has his eyes set on another young woman, and he begins to pray, talking to God, oh God, I met this girl the other day, this beautiful Filipino girl, She's so thoughtful and considerate. I see her growing in the Lord. She loves you. Lord, perhaps you might make me, make her to be my wife. Now, I've heard some guys pray like that. But you get the point. In the midst of this prayer, it's not like this young man is actually informing God of who this young woman is. He's just sharing his heart as an expression of his love and affection, and he's sharing it with God. Well, I believe we see something similar in this prayer that Jesus is uttering to the Father. He's uttering this prayer to the Father, but he's talking about his disciples. In fact, in this section here, we're we're not even going to get to the request that Jesus makes on behalf of the disciples, but we're just going to focus in on the way in which Jesus, in the midst of his love for the disciples, describes the disciples. This is the evening before Jesus' execution on the cross. And much like the high priest of the Old Testament would burn incense before entering into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, Jesus ascends in prayer to the Father before He dies upon the cross that next morning. And He utters this prayer on behalf of His disciples. And and it is, in a sense, a entering into the Holy of Holies as we see one member of the Trinity talking to another member of the Trinity on behalf of His own. And so what I want us to gather here from these three verses we're going to look at, just verses 6 through 8, are four precious characteristics of God's people so that you would understand your identity as one of God's people. And this is very important. Identity is something in our culture that we think that we attain to, that we take for ourselves. We, uh, long before Disney was woke, they have been imbibing young people with the idea that you can become anything you want in life. You can become a fairy, you know, you can, you can become whatever you want in life. And, and it's really a lie. It's not true. I will never become an NBA basketball star. I can assure you of this. It wouldn't matter how, how much I practiced, how much determination I had, it wouldn't happen. We, we've imbibed this lie that we can become anything in life. That... A man can become a woman. A woman become, can become a man. But ultimately, our most fundamental realities of who we are are actually given to us. And part of these realities we see from our text this morning. First of all, the first characteristic that Jesus describes of His own as He's praying to the Father is that these are the shown ones. These are the, the ones whom Jesus has manifested himself to. Look in verse 6 here. This is an amazing statement. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. This sentence that Jesus utters as part of his prayer for his disciples is pregnant with meaning. Notice 
this first phrase, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Now, first of all, this prayer, really verses 6 through 19, Jesus is, is most specifically praying for those immediate disciples, those 11 that still remain by the end of this Last Supper. But, but there's far more application as well to those who he's more, going to more specifically pray for at the end of the prayer, namely those who would believe through their testimony. So that while Jesus is praying specifically for his own disciples who were there with him on earth, there is much application for us as well. He says that he had manifested the Father's name to those who had been given out of the world. He had manifested, Jesus had revealed the Father to them. Now, this is nothing new in the Gospel of John, right? It starts from the very first verse of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus is described as an expression of the Father. At the end of that introduction to the Gospel in 118, it says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is in the bosom of the Father, has explained Him. So, Jesus came to reveal the Father. But even more specifically... As the Gospel of John unfolds, Jesus makes some shocking statements that demonstrates that Jesus is Yahweh God in the flesh. You remember that, that great instance of God revealing himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. When, when God is summoning Moses to be the instrument in his hand to deliver the Hebrews out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land, God comes to Moses and, and he says, and he, he gives him these instructions. And Moses says, What do I call you? In, in Exodus 3.13 says, Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What is his name? What shall I say to them, God? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. So when Moses asks God, what is your name? God says, I am that I am. And so here now in John 17, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to them. And is this not what we have observed over and over throughout the Gospel of John? When Jesus encounters that woman at the well, in John 4.26, and she's speaking of the Christ, and Jesus says, I who speak to you am. In other words, he tells the woman at the well, I am. Or later on in John chapter 6, as he encounters the disciples as they're out in the midst of the water, and they're afraid, he says, do not fear, I am. Or in John 8, 24, when he says to his disciples, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Or John 8, 58, when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Or John 13, 19, from now on Jesus said, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. And then one more example we'll see in the next chapter when they come to apprehend Jesus in the garden. Those Roman soldiers, Jesus says to those Roman soldiers, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And boom, they all fall on the ground. Over and over throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus reveals himself as I am. And even throughout the, the gospel, it, it, there's not only those I am statements, 
But there's the I am statements where he says, I am fill in the blank, right? Like John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes upon me will not thirst. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 1, I am the true vine. And so it's no wonder that when, when Jesus is praying to the Father, He tells the Father, Father, I have revealed, I have manifested Your name to them. I've shown them who I am. That I am the I am. And again, so this is highlighting the reality that Jesus is the true and living God who has revealed himself to his own disciples. He's revealed himself in his words, declaring himself to be the I am. He's revealed himself through his works as he, <coughs> as he changes the water uh, into wine in chapter 2, as he heals the nobleman's son in chapter 5, as he creates bread out of nothing in chapter 6, as he heals the blind man's eyes and creates new eyes for him in chapter 9, as he raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. All of these signs pointing to the reality that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God and Father. He is, I'm sorry, he's not the Father, but he is the eternal God, who's one of the members of the eternal Godhead. And he's now revealing himself, he has revealed himself to those who had been given to him out of the world. And so that this highlights the reality that the same God who reached down with His mighty hand and delivered the Hebrews out of Egypt who were helpless and miserable and desperate and crying out to, to this covenant God. This is the same God who came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to also reach down to miserable, helpless sinners and to bring them into a covenant relationship with Him. This is the same God. We've mentioned before, even in this same prayer, that human relationships, that in our human relationships, we, in a sense, love one another by communicating with one another. The, the closer the relationship, the closer the loving relationship, the more the self-disclosure. That the God of the Bible, He is an outgoing God. He is a God who discloses Himself to His people. He wants to be known and loved. And so, this is a, a big deal as Jesus describes these disciples as those whom he has manifested himself to. And this, by the way, is, is, is unique in what distinguishes Christianity really from all religions of the world. Virtually all religions of the world, man is trying to ascend to God. Man is, is trying to seek and find God, whether it's, whether it's even in Roman Catholicism where man is trying to get to God through the seven sacraments of the church, or whether it's through Buddhism going through the path of enlightenment, or whether it's through Islam following the five pillars of Islam, all these attempts to try to ascend to the deity. But it's Christianity where God comes down and reveals himself makes himself known even to the point of going to a Roman cross and dying on behalf of his own on that Roman cross so that others can be brought into the family. 
In Christianity, God comes down. And so, my friends, even though we were not here during those three and a half years of Jesus' ministry to hear Him make those I am statements, God, in the kindness of His providence, chose to cement those realities in His Word and to preserve them so that you would know and have this same God manifested to you through the person of Jesus Christ. And this same God is here in this room revealing Himself to you. You are amongst those who have been shown God. That is a great privilege. God has shown Himself to you. He has disclosed Himself to you. You must respond in faith as we'll see the disciples do. They received this revelation. Not perfectly. Not always so consistently. Many times with fear and trepidation. But they did believe. You, my friend, must believe as well. You must believe all that God has revealed Himself to be through the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus prays for His own, they are the shown ones. They are also, secondly, the selected ones. Notice verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested Your name to the men whom You gave Me out of the world. They were Yours, and You gave them to Me. They have kept your word. Notice this phrase that we see over and over in this prayer. Jesus calls his disciples the given ones. Those who the Father has. Notice it says they were yours. Now it's not that they were the Father's and they're not anymore but they were yours and there's a very real sense because Jesus is this mediator, because Jesus has been entrusted with this business of salvation, that these given ones by the Father, they're given to the Son and entrusted to the Son for the Son to die on their behalf, for the Son to be that surety, that mediator who puts His life on the line for their sake. They are the given ones. This is, we saw this phrase in verse 2. When Jesus prays, He says, everyone you have given Him. We see it two times in this verse we're looking at here. The people the, the men you gave me from the world, you gave them to me. We, we're going to see it in verse 9 when he says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And, and if you are a good student of the Gospel of John, you know this isn't the first time in the Gospel of John these given ones are mentioned, right? John chapter 6 in verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And everyone who comes to me, I will not cast out. I will in no wise cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that the Father has given me, I lose nothing but raise them up on the last day. So that these Given ones, they've been selected, or to use Paul's term, elected. They've been elected or chosen by the Father, not because of anything swell in them, not because of anything meritorious in them, but because of the kindness of the Father, He chooses them, and the Son is entrusted to be their mediator, to be their go-between to be their high priest who takes them 
in his heart into the holy of holies to die on their behalf. The given ones. And you know this isn't anything new in the New Testament. Over and over it's something that the authors of the New Testament highlight that God is a God of grace and His mercy. A grace that started in eternity past. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as He chose us in Him when? After you believed? He picked you on His team? No, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. And then Paul uses the P word in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons. It's the P word in some circles. But it's a beautiful, glorious reality that God is a God of grace who has given a people to the Son. We see this in Romans chapter 9 when Paul says, and he has, uh, it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. We see this in Acts 13 48 when Paul preaches the gospel to thousands. And Luke, the historian who's also a theologian, says, As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. What? As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. This is God's doing. Or how about 2 Timothy 1.9 He saved us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ from all eternity. Salvation through and through is free. It's, it's, it's the Father giving a people to the Son, a, this, this given people, not because of any merit in and of themselves, but purely because of God's grace. The English Puritan Richard Baxter in his classic work, The Saint's Everlasting Rest, which he wrote, by the way, when he thought he was dying, he wrote a book on heaven, and then he lived like 15 more years. <laughs> You know, back in the ancient world, they didn't know when they were going to kick the bucket. Not as good as we know. He says in this classic work, here, he says, salvation was dear to Christ. It was costly to Christ, but free to us. Here is all free. If the Father freely giveth the Son, and the Son freely pay the debt, and if God freely accept the way of payment when he might have required it of the principle. If both the Father and the Son freely offer us the purchased life on our cordial acceptance. If they freely send the Spirit to enable us to accept what is here then that it is not free. Oh, the everlasting admiration that must, must surprise the saints to think of this freeness. What an astonishing thought it would be in heaven to think of the immeasurable difference between our deservings and our receivings. What he's saying here is, is all eternity will spend in wonder of the reality of what we deserve, namely hell, and what was freely given. He continues on. Between the state we should have been in, hell, and the state we are in, heaven. To look down upon hell, to see the vast difference from that which we are adopted into. What pains of love will it cause within us to think, yonder that place that sin would have brought me to, but this is that Christ hath brought me to. Yonder death was the wages of my sin, but eternal life is the gift of God through Jesus Christ my Lord. But no thanks to us, nor to any of our duties and labors, much less to our neglects and laziness, we know to whom the praise is due and must be given forever. 
And so then he says this. I love this. So then let deserved be written on the door of hell, but on the door of heaven, the free gift. The door of hell says deserved. The door of heaven says free grace. It's free. It's all of grace. Friends, this highlights part of our identity in Christ is that we, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are amongst those who have been given by the Father to the Son. And it's all of grace. All of grace. Oh, how precious Jesus' own are to Him. I alluded to it earlier. In Exodus 28, verse 9 through 11, when instructions are given to the high priest as far as his uniform, he was to wear a breast piece. And on this breast piece, there was to be two onyx stones and engraved on them are the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave on the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. In other words, the high priest who stood as the representative of God's people And on one day out of the year, only one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, who would go into the Holy of Holies and offer that sacrifice on behalf of God's people, he had closest to his heart the names of God's covenant people. Engraved in gold on precious stones. Certainly this is indicative of the reality of Jesus as he goes into his holy of holy on Good Friday. That before it, he goes into with on his heart your name, my name. Oh, how precious is the love gift of the Father to the Son. Think of that. We've we've talked about that in this series, but... Somebody who you love dearly, who gives you something, that thing becomes something precious to you. You know, I, I have things that are in my possession that if I, if I took them to a pawn shop, I might not get a dime for them. But they're precious to me because people that I love have given them to me. In and of themselves, they may not be worth a whole lot, but they're worth much because the giver of the gift. In the same way, your value, your worth is connected to the reality that you are a love gift from the Father to the Son. And the Son has laid down His life on your behalf. This is part of your identity as not only... One who has been shown, revealed who God is through Jesus, but one who has been selected as a love gift from the Father. But thirdly, you are also amongst those set apart ones. Notice this also in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. Out of the world. You are out of this world. What does this mean? They've been given out of the world. Well, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John and actually most of John's writings, he often speaks of the world as that world system of unbelief. The world in contrast with the people of God. He uses this language later on in in 1713 when when he speaks of his disciples. I've given them your word and the world has hated them 
because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. For they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As I sent, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in the truth. So we'll obviously be touching upon this theme more as we work our way through this prayer. But for our purposes right now, let us observe that part of the identity of those disciples and the identity of all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is that you have been given by the Father out of the world. You've been taken out of the world. You're not part of this worldly system of unbelief. You have been taken out of this world to be set apart, sanctified by the truth. Which seems to me to suggest that the world is filled with lies. It's filled with all kinds of deceptions. And that which sets you apart from the world is the truth. The truth that is contained in the Word of God because Jesus prays, sanctify them or set them apart with the truth Your word is truth. And also, one more thing about this. You are set apart from the world to go back to the world. (laughs) With a mission to the world to pluck others out of the world. This is part of your identity. That you have been set apart from this world system. You see, this world system began not in Genesis 1 and 2. It began in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve rebelled against the Creator and all of the sons and daughters of Adam were also plunged into rebellion and so much that there comes that promise that the, there would be this hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent being the world. The world system of unbelief. But God in His kindness would begin to rescue a people out of that world system. And He began with Noah and then Abraham. And then on and on, the people of God, the God's covenant people in, in Israel. And then... And then the coming of the Lord Jesus and Jesus continuing to call out a people for Himself. This is huge because this is part of who you are. You are not to go according to the course of this world. You are not to just do what everybody else does, to just believe everything else everybody else believes. You're not to just go with the flow. Which means, in many ways, you have to be swimming upstream. And everybody else is going downstream. You're going against the current. Which usually doesn't make everybody else happy. But there's always this seduction to just continue to go with the flow. To quote unquote get on the right side of history. To accommodate your beliefs, your practices to the world around you. But Jesus said, He says it here in verse 13, the world has hated them. And the world in in Jesus' day was very religious people. Scribes, Pharisees. And the world in our day is also not going to love and welcome you. And so, it's very important you just die 
to the smiles and frowns of the world. It ought not to be on your agenda to try to please this world. But instead, you are set apart. You are sanctified. That's what that word means, to be set apart, to be devoted unto God. Not, not set apart for the sake of being set apart. I mean, that's, that's the Amish, right? They're just set apart. They're different. But we're to be set apart to be devoted unto this great God. You may have seen in recent weeks Rick Warren gave his love letter speech to the Southern Baptist Conference and uh, you may have followed that Saddleback Church where he pastors has come under some scrutiny because they have put into pastoral ministry women even though the Baptist faith and message says God puts only men in pastoral ministry. The irony as I was talking with some of the elders this past week is this, this seduction to try to accommodate to the world. Is the world really ever going to love you? They say, oh yeah, you guys have women pastors. Now, now we'll love you. No. <laughs> and yet, unfortunately, Slick Rick keeps trying to accommodate. Friends, we just need to die to the smiles and frowns of this world. Instead, to be devoted to the Lord, even if that means the world thinks us bigots, narrow-minded, whatever. Yeah, we need to explain what we really believe. We're going to be maligned and misunderstood. The early church dealt with that. They thought they were, you know, incestuous because they married brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. They thought they were cannibals because... They drank the blood of Christ at the Lord's Supper. You've you got to explain those things away. Speak the truth. But we can't accommodate what we believe and how we live because the rest of the world is going that way. So this, again, when you think of the identity of a believer... We have been set apart for the Lord. In, those, in that marriage ceremony, there is that line, forsaking all others, being devoted to one another. That, that's the idea, forsaking all others, being devoted to the Lord. Set apart for him. I remember when I was young, I think it was at my grandma's house, there was a special room that had furniture in it that still had the plastic on it. Remember those rooms? And you know, being young, we would want to go in that room and jump on the plastic covered couch. No, 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 no. That room's only for special occasions. Or maybe you have the, you know, the, the special china, the fine china that, that you only break out on the special occasions, the more formal occasions, but it's set apart and it's to be devoted for that special use. That's what, what Jesus is saying here as he's talking about, uh, about his disciples. You have given them to me out of the world. They were special to me. They are of special devotion. Friend, do you see yourself that way? That all that you are is to be devoted to Him. Your life, your gifts, your time, 
your talents, your treasure. It's all to go northward for the glory of God. You, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Well, these disciples of Jesus, they are the shown ones. They have been revealed the name of the Father from Jesus. They are the selected ones. They've been given by the Father to Jesus. They are also the set-apart ones. They've been taken out of the world. But then fourth and lastly, they are the certain ones. Now, I hesitated to use the word certain here, but it it is somewhat fitting in in the way Jesus describes them. Notice the end of verse 6. It says, And they have kept your word. Verse 7, Now they have come to know, they've come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words you gave me I have given to them, And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. Uh, What we have here is as Jesus describes his own disciples is the reality that they have received Jesus' message. They have kept Jesus' word. They know that everything that that Jesus gave them came from the Father, that there is this this direct inter-Trinitarian thing going on between Jesus and the Father. And they've received Jesus and His words. They've believed that Jesus has been sent by the Father. They've accepted it. They've accepted it and believed it. Not because of, again, they were smarter than everybody else. They were better than everybody else. In fact, it would kind of be like this if a child shows up in the nursery this morning and they're 10 month old and they're just beginning to utter Words, yes and no, mostly no. And the child is asked the question, you look nice. Did you bathe this morning? Yes. It looks like you're full. Did you eat a yummy breakfast? Yes. I love your outfit. Did you get dressed this morning? Yes. But the reality is, with each of these, it was mom or dad who dressed the child, right? It was mom or dad who fed the child. It was mom or dad who brought them this morning. In a similar way, these who have received, these who have believed, it's as Jesus said earlier, all that the Father has given me will come to me. By grace they had believed. By grace they had received. Doesn't this sound just like John 1.12? When Jesus says that He was in the world and the world was made through Him but the world did not know Him. He came unto His own and His own did not receive Him. Yet, verse 12, yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So these disciples, they did receive. They did believe. They did embrace what Jesus had said. Now, what I love about this is, again, let's consider Jesus as he is, He's talking to the Father. And He's talking to the Father about these disciples. He says they have received, they have believed. 
But the reality is they, they did receive and they did believe, but not very well, right? I mean, the very next day, as Jesus is being apprehended in the garden, all of a sudden, Peter becomes a samurai warrior, right? And then they all run. And then Peter denies him three times. In other words, over and over, we see, we saw even in, earlier on in John 13, the, the way in which Peter was misunderstanding things and, and the disciples along with him. And in other words, they did receive, they did believe, albeit not perfectly. But nonetheless, the, Jesus doesn't bring any of that up here, does he? He simply states of them that they had kept your word. They have come to know everything you have given me is from you. For the words you gave me I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that, you, that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. In other words, even though their faith was weak and it was fledgling and it wasn't what it ought to be and it was often wavering and often intermingled with doubts, they did believe. Maybe that's somebody here this morning. You have doubts. You have struggles. You have a fledgling faith. Maybe your faith could be described in the language of the prophet as a smoldering wick or a bruised reed. And yet Jesus is tenderly making sure that that smoldering wick doesn't get blown out. And it's almost as if Jesus is cupping His hands around your faith and making sure that it, 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 it is sustained. But it's faith. It's real belief. But also you need to understand here that notice the way in which Jesus is so closely connected to the Father. In verse 7, Jesus says, They have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. They have received them and understand I came forth from you and they have believed you sent me. Notice this connection between Jesus and the Father. So that you cannot believe in the Father apart from Jesus. And you cannot believe in Jesus apart from the Father. That He is as He said He is in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through Me. That all the culmination of redemption has been placed in the hands of Jesus so that you can only get to God through Jesus. You must believe. You must receive. That is the only way to God the Father is through Jesus under the power of the Holy Spirit. The great Southern Presbyterian Benjamin Morgan Palmer he tells of a meeting in his study. This is uh, in Ian Murray's Revival and Revivalism. He tells this story. Benjamin Palmer meets in his study with a man who had been attending church who had not yet believed on Jesus. He entered into Palmer's study and he began to complain about his recent sermons. Recently, Palmer had been preaching that faith comes only as God's gift. Yet sinners must believe in order to avoid condemnation. Palmer looking down at the manuscript that he had been working on, didn't even look up at the man. He just answered as he's looking in his manuscript, well, my dear friend, there's no use in our quarreling over the matter. Either you can believe or you cannot. If you can, all I have to say to you is I hope you will just go and do it still not looking up at the man, 
So as not to distract him, Palmer could hear the choke in his voice as he replied, I've been trying my best for three whole days and I can't believe. Ah, said Palmer, now laying down his pen, facing the man, so as not to distract him. He says to the man, that puts a different face on it. We will go then and tell the difficulty straight to the Lord. Here's how he reports it. Palmer says, we knelt down together. I prayed in the most matter-of-fact style as though this was the first time in human history this trouble, namely of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, had ever arisen. That here was a soul in the most desperate extremity which must believe or perish and was hopelessly unable of itself to do it. That consequently, it was just the case It was just the case calling for divine interposition and pleading most earnestly for the fulfillment of the divine promise. Upon rising, I offered not a single word of comfort or advice. So I just left my friend in his powerlessness in the hands of God as the only helper. In a short time, he came through the struggle rejoicing in the hope of eternal life. Friend, you can't believe, but you must believe. And I pray that you will. And those who believe will continue to believe. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for this glorious description of your people. It seems almost unreal as we look at our own weak lives. But Lord, we are amongst those you have shown yourself to. And we are amongst those who have been given by the Father to the Son. And we count ourselves privileged to be set apart for you And by your grace, we have received and now have certainty. We thank you, Lord. I pray for anybody in this room who has not yet believed. Oh God, by your grace, they would receive and believe. In the name of Jesus, amen.